full contact cannabis. Richard, do me the uh, favor of introducing yourself. Uh, I'm Richard Rose. Okay. You mean talk about talk about my history or something? Well, that's the thing about it is you have probably the longest history in hemp continuous of any person around right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been doing hemp food. I uh, 26 years ago, 1994, 26 years ago, I had been in the soy foods industry making vegan foods, over 100 foods, coast-to-coast uh, -coast distribution in the U.S. and Canada and supermarket chains and natural food stores for 14 years. And I was on the Inc. 500 doing tofu cheese in the Reagan 80s, America's most hated food in the Reagan 80s, tofu, making cheese out of it in uh, cheese flavors and selling it all over the place, uh, Trader Joe's in Canada and, and all the supermarkets. And got on the Inc. 500 in 1993 doing that. And then in 94, I pivoted uh, from using soybeans to make foods to hemp seed and uh, made the hemp rella, the cheese and hemp a burger, a veggie burger uh, made out of tempeh with hemp in it. And um, then I ended up doing about 15 hemp products in the 90s. And then in um, 2001, I sold the Rella company for 3.7 million. Right at the time, HIA killed the hemp food market. And so here I was flush with cash, uh, ready to work on just one business instead of two. Um, had a ton of momentum, you know, uh, dozens of TV shows and, and hundreds of newspapers and dozens of radio shows. And so there was a huge momentum for hemp foods at the time that I was riding surfing. And just as I was about to break it all open, HIA sued uh, DEA for legalizing 96% of the hemp industry outright with no max THC, thereby killing the hemp food market for two and a half years. So when that happened, I just walked away from a two and a half million dollar investment in, in hemp foods and eight years of work and, and retired to Amsterdam. Which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here so bad is because of part of the way the direction of hemp and it seems like the undue influence that the HIA has had the last four or five years. Yeah, 20, 20 years. I mean, it was the first hemp, hemp association in North America back in 94. And I wasn't part of the founding, but I came into it about within a year of its founding and became treasurer and got it legal with IRS and gave it a bunch of money to meet bills. And I was a director, started the hemp, uh, the uh, food and oil committee, because at the time they were incredulous that hemp could even be a legitimate food. And uh, they were all fiber and, you know, retailers and of uh, clothes and packs and wallets and things that made out of fiber. And um, I, you know, my vision <clears throat> since 1980 was food. So I was, you know, part of that was doing a food and oil committee to try to legitimize the food side for the first time. So I did that and then also wrote the first certification program in hemp for their, uh, their fiber certification of clothes and textiles and the like. And I did that, I think in 96 or seven or so, and, you know, help give it legitimacy and food, enough legitimacy to credibly sue DEA uh, against uh, my advice. We could handle their rule. The rule was no THC in, in hemp food for or hemp for ingestion, uh, human ingestion consumption. And, 
And the thing was, since everything was imported, it all had to go through U.S. Customs. Therefore, U.S. Customs THC test was the one that controlled the definition of uh, no THC, and that was one part per million. And we could easily do that with foods. And with some cleaning, a little bit of cleaning, we could do that with oil. So it was not a, a regulation that was going to sink the industry by any, any means. It was just a you know, it's just another regulation that businesses have to have to deal with from time to time. And that was uh, that was our chance to clean up literally the, the industry, improve quality, get all the THC out because there is still trace amounts of THC in hemp seed oil. And um, it can still I mean, even in, in the, today, it can cause a, a DUI in Colorado, which is a, a five nanogram uh, result and you can get that easily in Colorado or the get a DUI in Canada at two uh, nanograms just from hemp seed oil. I was kind of curious is that transition where my first association with the hemp industries was through the Tennessee Hemp Industries Association and one of the things that uh, early on I got pressured to join and I kind of resisted and never did end up joining. When I started going to occasional, you know, to meetings in 2014, 2015, it seems like there was two different camps. One camp was education activism. And by 2014, 2015, there were people actually trying to put the industry in the Hemp Industry Association. Early on got accused of being this money grubbing person because I wanted to be able to have a business that was sustainable. It seemed to be a clash. And like right now, organizations built to represent the industry or is it activism education still? Like right now, the hemp industry has gone through really bad problems. The lady who was running it stepped down a few months ago. They have a new person. And it seems like they're still trying to justify their existence mm -hmm. in an industry that's sort of passed them by. So, yeah, the... I, my since 1980, I considered that business was activism. That was how I approached uh, business. It was as activism. I believed that business could be a tool for activism done right. And so back in the in the 80s, it was soy foods and vegetarianism and and veganism. Though we didn't call it that at the time, uh, but vegetarianism certainly and and reducing you know, you know animal the animal products industry and the like. And then in the 90s, it became hemp seed and hemp and, and uh, legalization of hemp. And, and the belief is that it, you, through business, you can achieve far more activism than you can just being an activist. And the reason why is, for instance, Hemprella had a, an inch and a half big neon green uh, hemp leaf, seven finger hemp leaf on a, on a dark purple background with the word hemprella, uh, hemp, you know, at least an inch tall right above it on every, almost every natural food store in, uh, in North America. And that alone was a little billboard for hemp. Uh, if I was just an activist, I would have never been able to get millions of impressions of the leaf and the word hemp in people's eyes across the country. Um, but I was able to do it through selling products and, and the, in this case, Hamparella. And so there was a, a, an ability to use industry to create social change. And that, that was what I was trying to do with it. That's, you know, that's why uh, 
I didn't pivot to other foods. I just stuck with hemp. Uh, Nativa, for instance, went to chia and, and coconut and all this other stuff. And and my vision was was to use the bring attention to the issue of of hemp and uh, and try to change people's minds and and hit them to the fact that it could be a food even and a delicious food at that. And so in 1996, I introduced the shelled hemp seed for the first time. Hemp hearts, you call them. Back then, we called it hemp nut. It was considered a term so generic. HIA and North American Industrial Hemp Council both wanted the trademark to it. And today, you call it hemp hearts. But in 96 was the first introduction of that. And I was the first one to do it by years ahead of everybody else in, in North America. And um, that ended up becoming, in just uh, about a little more than one generation, a little more than 20 years, the first uh, billion-dollar industry in hemp. Manitoba Harvest ended up selling a couple times, and, and based on the valuation of their sales relative to their market share, that made shelled hemp seed uh, hemp's first billion-dollar industry. The transition, because at one point, hemp really was dominated by the fiber seed oil food thing. And then when the awareness of the secondary cannabinoids, such as CBD, came about, it seems like the whole industry from about 2014, 2015 has changed. We'd just love to get an idea of what do you consider the hemp industry? Well, there are a lot of hemp industries today. And until CBD, the CBD explosion, the, the seed uh, food you know, was the value driver for hemp worldwide. Uh, in Canada, it was 90% of Canadian hemp was shelled hemp seed so, for food. So uh, until CBD, it was all about that. That was where it was headed. Since CBD, not only do we have CBD, um, but we have smokable hemp now too. And that's the, the, next, uh, the next big segment on the horizon. So we have a number of hemp industries and today, that, and they're all, they're all pretty different. I mean, if you're going to do fiber, you're not really going to do seed as you're, it's not, you'll try to pull some seed off, but you'll be lucky if, if it's not immature and, and it, it works. And if you're doing seed, you're not going to do CBD. And if you're doing CBD, you're not going to do fiber or, or seed. And if you're going to do smokable, you're not going to extract it for CBD and you don't want seed and you, you don't care about the fiber. So it's segmented itself into uh, these different um, silos and therefore could become as ubiquitous as soybean. Because in, in soya, there's a zillion things that contain uh, so, some sort of soy product, whether it's lecithin or it's viscose or um, it's a, it's a, it's a, a lipid, a oil, a cooking oil, or, uh, you know, there's uh, whipping proteins. There's, um, you know, some of them don't even need to be disclosed because they're used at such low levels. So I think it'll become as diverse as, as soybean uh, well, that, has become today. Well, that's the question. Should cannabinoid production even be considered a part of hemp? I call it drug hemp. Um, I started the Medicinal Hemp Association in 2014. The top three, the biggest three CBD companies at the time asked me to do that, to push back on HIA, trying to hurt CBD at the time. You know, I was the first to coin medicinal hemp. It, today, I call it drug hemp because uh, that's really what it is. 
it's the CBD has long been the main cannabinoid in, in hemp. There's more 90% of the CBD on the planet is are in hemp plants uh, around the planet. So it was a natural evolution since it's there. Uh, even fiber varieties have maybe 2% CBD in them in the flowers. Some of the Italian stuff's got seven, 8%. We've, some we, of it, yeah, yeah. That's, but but that's what I'm saying is the, the ambiguity because here we have like going on here in the United States this Delta Nine, and we're parsing whether something can be considered hemp or whatever. Ever when you and I both know that the point three threshold is not a natural threshold. That's an arbitrary line in the sand that somebody said. Well, I guess we can agree this. And yeah. because what's going on here and also with the new emergence of like Delta-8, which is a Delta-8 THC, which they're making from CBD. This whole, and then, because, you know, basically the only difference between a, a drug, high THC drug cultivar and a high CBD drug cultivar is a drug test. Yeah, so in around 2010, what I noticed in 2014, I was living in, in Boulder and, I started, uh, you know, go hanging out with uh, the, the people starting CBD production and growing hemp back then and breeding it, Josh Raiderman and uh, David Bonvillain and um, uh, Mark uh, Brannigan and Ver Veronica Carpio and people like that. And, and, and they would show me their handiwork and it was uh, hemp but it was bred like marijuana. It was grown under lights like marijuana. It was um, extracted like marijuana. It was packaged like a marijuana extract would be by people who used to grow marijuana, but it was hemp. It had an upside down cannabinoid ratio. That opened my eyes to this, to this whole thing that this is not your grandpa's hemp anymore. This is an entirely new, new thing. In my evolution of hemp, I have uh, hemp 1.0 was the was fiber, and that's what we had for like 12,000 years. Hemp 2.0 was uh, the seed for food uh, in starting in mid-90s. Hemp 3.0 was CBD, and hemp 4.0, I believe it'll be a, a huge component of hemp, is, is smokable. That's when I started realizing in 2014 and 15 that, that it could be a, a legitimate uh, smokable product, not to cop a buzz, but for a, a number of reasons. We all know the, the people who can't smoke weed because they get paranoid or anxious or they just don't like it, but they wanna be you know, in with the cool kids and smoking something so they could roll a joint of it and not get, uh, it calm down and, and uh, uh, you know, it's anxiolytic CBD and, and um, it's terpy, so it smells like weed a little different, but it's still, it smells like, like you're smoking weed. And, and, uh, it, I saw it as a legitimate, uh, legitimate product. And when I spoke about it at NOCO hemp, hemp expo, uh, future of hemp, um, back in 15, I guess people were laughing at me about it and today they're making money on it. So there's been more innovation in hemp the last seven years than the last 7,000 years. And that's just another example of it. We, uh, our company, Tennessee Homegrown, we, I started getting into this 2014. We got our first crop in the ground 2015. We never saw smokable flour. We were growing strictly to make uh, tinctures and some edibles, topicals. Yeah. yeah. 
then this thing hit in Tennessee where, you know, they had one brave soul came out and opened up a dispensary, you know, looked around to see if they were going to get busted and they didn't. And it took off. And we never, we really genuinely did not think there were going to be a quantitative amount of people that preferred if they could go into a, a, a store and there was high THC and high CBD would choose high CBD over high THC, but we found the market. And what we're finding, because we're a Delta nine state, Tennessee is. Mm -hmm. So we have these guys that are out here cranking out flour that, uh, you know, it's like 0.299 Delta THC, Delta nine THC, but it's three or 4% THCA. (laughs) And And they're illegal products here. But so, uh, so is that like 10% CBD then? Well, it's, it comes in around 10 to 12. Yeah. So there, it might be 3% THCA, but they're not really going to cop a buzz if it's 12, 10, 12%. Well, that's THCA. where I disagree with you. We've got stuff and unless you, now, if you have a really, really high t- THC threshold, it will get you buzzed because, mm-hmm. because it lowered that ratio. And then the right. os- other thing that we have, it's going on here which is interesting as heck and we're we did it because we had demand we're going in and we're doing live resin where we're dropping this stuff down to like 80 below zero and mm. we're running all the way through so we have a product that has no decarboxylization and no yeah. terpene loss so right. we can crank out products that once again come in point two two nine, but still if you decarbed them they're coming in around four percent and and because of the terps it's one of these things where you know you know because you do people try it and they go i can feel this and so yeah i think you can feel it and i think the cbds only you know virtually no thc you'll feel something is it really like a thc buzz though the reason i'm mentioning this is now it seems like this little evolution where people are wanting these things that are like 50 50 Mm-hmm. And when you have something that's 50% CBD and 50% THC, is that hemp? Not in one plant, but you're, you're, to get one-to-one, you'd have, for most of them, you'd have to blend something. No, there's, no, that's where I'm saying is there's varieties now. These guys, some ACDC, some canatonics and stuff, right. and they're, right. that's what they're going for because yeah. they're in rec states where, like I said, they got, the customer, and this is one of the things that's kind of weird about this is, is how the customer is driving this. Yeah, and I, I, I saw that come, you know, I have two degrees in marketing. So, and I've been, that's what I do, been doing for a long time is marketing. So I saw that as a marketing opportunity, just like I saw hemp foods as, as a marketing opportunity. And it, to me, it just made sense that it would eventually take off knowing what I knew about all of it. But if you look at Italy today, there's 1,500 of those shops and they sell nothing but CBD hemp flowers. And even most of those are, are uh, um, approved varieties. So it's Carmignola and, and uh, you know, Futura and Fedora and, and, and Finola and stuff like that. And there's still 1,500 of these shops and, and making tons of money and and there's at least a couple hundred in switzerland well you want to talk about eu because we started getting uh inquiries about trying to sell flour to eu but none of the flour we're growing would 
to EU standards because they're all looking for stuff point two and below. So yeah, how are these shops in Italy doing this? A couple of ways. First of all, in uh, Switzerland's not in the EU. It's um, yeah. it, it's neutral. So its laws are they don't care about approved varieties. It's the only country in all of Europe that doesn't care, and uh, they have one percent max THC. Elsewhere in Europe, it's typically 0.2%, though in Italy it's 0.6, and final products can be 0.5, but they have to be approved varieties. Now, there's, you know, there's people willing to buy a, a bag of an approved variety seed and grow whatever they want instead and just say if they ever get, get if anybody asks, they can point to the bag in the corner and say it's that. So there might be some funny business going on, but not in Switzerland. They can kind of do what they want. It totally created the hemp industry in Switzerland. It was really not a hemp, hemp nation. And, and in Italy, it totally re-energized the, um, the very old hemp industry here. But like right now, this phenomenon of D8, which is another one of the things that hit us from left field. Yeah. Uh, in May, I'm talking to my, the Tennessee Department Ag person. We're, you know, we're friends at this point and we just talk shop. So she calls me up and she says, have you ever heard of D8? And I said, well, yeah, it's like a minor component on any COA for hemp. I mean, it's, you know, if you want to look down there far enough, you'll find a little bit of D8. She said, we're getting people calling. And it's just like, so I didn't think anything about it. And then all of a sudden we started seeing on the boards about people trying to find it and people selling it. Yeah. And right now it's to the point where there are stores, since we're not a true wreck, we're not a wreck state, where they're just selling this beyond belief. And now it seems to be driving, now we, we're hearing about people gearing up for production and these sort of things, but it seem, this does truly seem to be consumer driven. I think it's more regulatory driven and that controls what consumers can buy, therefore they, they want it. But if the, reg, if the regs didn't exist the way they were, it wouldn't necessarily be the thing they, they would ask for or want. Hold, can, I, can I do this right now? Abby, you're a consumer of DA, aren't you? Yes. Talk to me. Well, so my question, I guess that popped up in my head for you, Richard, was do you see a similar emergence of D8 in the European Union, do you see D8? Like, is that a common item? No, it, uh, I, I, I haven't seen it. I haven't heard it here. I haven't heard anybody talking about it here. And that's because it, I think it's technically more illegal in, in Europe uh, than, it, I mean, it might be, I'm not really clear. Um, the thing that it blows my mind about uh, beyond D8 is CBN, that they're making CBN from, from CBD as well as the THC they pull off from distillation. Well, the, the reason I brought up Abby is because Abby's one of those people who prefers D8 to D9. Huh, yeah, interesting. Don't you, Abby? I haven't tried it. I mean, call it just the novelty experience, but I prefer D8 at the moment because it's not like, you know, when you, you smoke too much THC and you just dab out and you, you cannot really form sentences almost. Um, 
Well, so with D8, I haven't, I haven't had that where you just, you take too much of it. Um, maybe it's from smoking too much Delta nine, but I, um, I like the euphoric like body high that goes with the non overly psychoactive high from D8. So I don't think it's going away. Yeah, it might not be. I haven't tried it, so I, don't, I can't say anything about it empirically. Um, I haven't seen it here. I haven't even seen it mentioned. I'm in Italy now, and and uh, they it it doesn't seem to be on our screen here at all. It seems to be all from the states. And I think it might have to. I think D8 is more more regulated here, just like CBN is. The good thing about Europe is that every country has a slightly different drug law, and um, what you can do and can't do in one country, you might be able to do in another. So it would be as if the states, as if the feds didn't really regulate drugs and each state had a, had their own CSA. Step, did you have a question? Yeah, for the layperson, could we define the difference between D8 and D9? There are all these different cannabinoids. There are also all different types of THC. The one that's the most prevalent is delta nine. Delta eight is a more obscure cannabinoid. And because it's so obscure, and, and I don't want to go too nerd, but you have to realize that up until Dr. Raphael Meshelam went in and isolated these compounds, people really didn't know. I mean, it was THC. There wasn't all these, these different compounds. But when they found out specifically that it was delta nine that was doing this, then that got to be the framework of law was the Delta nine level. Richard, do you have anything to, if I mangled that? No, it's pretty accurate. So THCA, the acid form that's found in the raw plant, I believe is, is there's more of that around just because it's the raw form. And then once it gets uh, decarb, tar decarboxylated and the, the CO2 gets pulled off and it loses 13% um, of its, its weight, then it, um, it becomes a delta-9 THC. Now, if you continue the process, it'll, you can get it to be delta-8. Uh, there's not much delta-8 on a plant, but just like there's not much CBN on a plant, but you can process to get both from THC. I used to make CBN when I lived in Boulder, and I started with uh, shatter that I could buy legally there uh, cheaply, and, and, um, and then I would just oxidize it uh, with time and heat and oxygen over a few days and make CBN with it. If I wanted to, I could have made C, uh, Delta-8, but um, uh, it, it was not on my radar back then. The whole making a Delta-8 is basically using an acid. Didn't you write an obscure paper a few years ago about the conversion of, T, of CBD to THC in the stomach? Yeah, I uh, I wrote, uh, I think it was called CBD may convert to THC in the stomach. And it was a clickbaity head, uh, headline because in, in theory it's possible, but nobody's been able to do it. But in vitro, you and I could do it. We could do it without even trying. And what that means in vitro is, is in the... Uh, like in a glass. So I, I saw it happen right before my eyes. My wife poured uh, a glass of Mr. and Mrs. T uh, Bloody Mary, spicy Bloody Mary mix without the vodka and um, put some CBD in it, 
and uh, and let it sit for 10 or 20 minutes. And then she drank it, not thinking anything of it and got really high. And I saw it right in front of my eyes. I said, wow, you, you're really baked. And she said, yeah, I don't even have any idea how. And we figured out it was the CBD and we figured out it was the, uh, the, 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 the uh, Bloody Mary mix because it's a high acid, uh, high salt environment. And that was it. And that's when I started realizing that maybe this, that it was possible, not in vivo, not in the body, but in well, vitro, in a, in a glass or in, you know, in, in some, in a, in a flask or a beaker or something. But it opens up possibilities of making interesting products like with CBD isolate and, and lemon juice powder and citric acid and a, and a little flavoring and people make lemonade that has no THC in it until it sits around for a while and then they drink it. Well, what are the observations? Because uh, we're in Tennessee homegrown now. It's like, you know, five years old and we've been literally selling edibles for years that every once in a while we would get feedback from somebody that, you know, our stuff, all our stuff, COA, that they would eat some of our chocolate and just get fried. And then you get back to them and you say, well, how did you consume it? Well, I got up in the morning and I ate it with a cup of coffee on an empty stomach. Maybe they had orange juice. Well, the coffee's acidic. So That's here it is, you get dumped this chop. And so that was why we were trying to figure out why does, you know, we understand with THC edibles, why, you know, if you do X amount, you're, you're going to get fried. Yeah. But we were starting to get the results from uh, the edibles. And the one that we found that that did the most was the gummies, because you had for the amount of material, you had the highest concentration of cannabinoids. Were you the know, gummies I, acidic? Did they have any? No, but what I'm saying is you dump them in your stomach. Yeah. You're you getting this. Them. Yeah. And, but that's one of the things that we we're finding out about this is, and you kind of try to, you know, because our customers are wonderful. We're, they're wacky. We love them. But if something happens, they're going to let you know. It's just like, why did I get fried on your gummies? A few ways of looking at it. For some people, their body is not used to many cannabinoids. And if suddenly they're getting filled with phytocannabinoids, their body, you know, it might be a CB1 agonist for them. And maybe it is converting in the stomach or maybe in the gummy, it uh, over time it converted sitting on the shelf uh, is another possibility. They were able to do it with mice and it, it converted to CBN, D8, and D9 and some metabolites. That's the other thing is what you get uh, high on the most with THC edibles is actually from the metabolites more than the, the THC. So um, those are very stony. So um, even if it converts in acid to a metabolite and not THC, it could still be stony. Your transition over the last few years is still, I think in a way you're still a giant in this industry, but the direct influence, you're kind of choosing to be like Obi-Wan Kenobi of hemp or how do you see yourself now? I, I retired when I moved to Amsterdam in 2002 and, and said, screw it to California and, you know, everything. And, um, I, I retired and, and I, um, I came back to Colorado in 2006 and uh, was knocking around Boulder for a, a while and then got back into the hemp thing. But I, I don't, I mean, I give away enormous amounts of information. I do 
10,000 posts a year on CBD and hemp, on uh, Canna Search Daily, uh, on the Richard Rose Report. I write at the Richard Rose Report uh, stuff all the time, original things that I find, and I give them context and history and background and why it's important. And uh, 60 pay, uh, documents for download, uh, most of them I wrote uh, for free. And I guess I sort of am trying to just, you know, I never ask for money. I don't, I, I don't do a Patreon, Patreon. I don't do Steam it. I don't do subscriptions. I don't, uh, everything on my website is free. There are no ads, uh, zero ads on my website uh, with all this free information. I never do a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe. I just never ask for money. And most of the people that try to get me to consult, I, I turn down, um, the vast majority of them. So I do this because I do it for the same reason I've been trying to get marijuana legalized for 48 years. And that's, that's to, for the movement. I, I believe that it was a grave injustice to, to criminalize a plant that God gave us and then put the best and brightest our generation had to offer in prison or kill them uh, over it. And I've been trying to get legality for 48 years since the 1972 um, uh, Proposition 19 in California that I campaigned for. And it's for the movement to get things progressed. That's, you know, the more, the, the more, I do, the more I can help move the, the movement forward and the more likely we will uh, see the vision I had back then, which is uh, decriminalization, true, true decriminalization where nobody's going to jail for a plant. What is your visualization now? That's a good question because what I've realized in the last few years is that all these years I've been working on this just brought us to the point where rich old white, straight white guys are making bank on this. and brothers and, and uh, essays and, and, uh, and white guys uh, are still sitting in prison uh, for life for the exact same thing that these rich old white guys are making bank on. And we don't have legalization, not in Canada. They arrest 1,500 people a year, mostly for possession still. Not in California. They arrest 6,000 people a year, mostly people of color and for possession. Uh, not in Colorado, they arrest 5,000 people a year, mostly possession and mostly people of color. So clearly we don't have legalization. So I, I realized that it's sort of a turning point in all this kind of activism that we're, we need to double down our efforts and truly get it descheduled, both in the states uh, where it's schedule one as well as federally and just get the feds out of it, turn it over to the states and and take it from there. But this this idea that we're going to fix everything by legalizing and taxing is was just wrong. Uh, it it never turns out the way we thought. It there's never been social equity. It's always the the rich getting richer and and people still going to jail uh, who shouldn't be going to jail. So it, it's still not legal. And and um, a lot of what I do today is is trying to show people who are about to legalize how not to do it. Uh, the, the wrong way and not to look at Canada and not to look to Colorado and um, and that the, the more they can decentralize it and make it uh, so that patients and consumers have access without fancy regulatory schemes, the, the better off they'll be. I don't see the feds getting out of it because now it's almost this legitimate uh, revenue stream. So they're seeing the taxation possibilities 
is similar to alcohol. Uh, do you think that will drive governments to deregulate or keep regulating the hell out of it? Yeah, you can't have anything more heavily regulated than Schedule One with no medical value and a high degree uh, potential for abuse. Uh, is Schedule One is is the poison in all this. Uh, you don't have banking with Schedule One. You can lose your house with Schedule One. You can lose your kids with Schedule One. You can lose your career with Schedule One. You can't do banking. You, it's very hard to do insurance. Uh, your neighbor can sue under RICO statutes for Schedule One. Um, they're about to work that same magic on, on psilocybin now. Even though it's the world's safest medicine, they're trying to, uh, to um, regulate it like hazmat and make it so only uh, the rich can, can profit off it and every, still schedule one for everybody else. So I think that there's been proposals to f floated to uh, levy a 5% excise tax at the federal level. I, there's no reason for the feds to be involved after 83 years of mismanagement of this. They've put millions of people in jail. They've ruined millions of lives. And they, at this point, we need our 21st Amendment or our DSHEA and the feds to, uh, to we're never going to get an apology, but at least they should just step away from it. Uh, you know, still regulate imports, still regulate FDA-approved uh, drugs. But beyond that, it's, it's really a, um, an intrastate, uh, wholly intrastate um, operation. Justice uh, Clarence Thomas said that um, the founding fathers would have never in a million years thought that they would uh, regulate the um, uh, intrastate, wholly intrastate operations around involving uh, hemp. And uh, that's what we have today. So on the Supreme Court, we at least have one friend in this issue. Uh, our friends in Congress, Blumenauer and Polis, wanted to put uh, cannabis and be in the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and they wanted to levy an occupational tax like you see in tobacco on the businesses and on the employees. So I agree that they're going to try to milk this as long as possible for the friends who invest in prisons and the cops and the narcs and the judicial system and lawyers and, and the like, but... Um, we have 90% support, and even for adult use, we have 70% public support. I just don't see it as, as sustainable for them, uh, especially, I'm hoping Biden is the one who turns it around because he was a drug war architect for many decades, since the 80s, and he has his fingerprints and blood on his hands from so many bad laws that were passed, uh, the cocaine discrepancy, disparity laws, sentencing laws, for instance, uh, three strikes and you're out, all the stuff, uh, minimum mandatories. He has his fingerprints over all of it. So I'm hoping he has a come to Jesus moment and says, uh, at the time I thought I was right and I now see the unintended consequences of my, my laws and, and so we're going we're gonna to legalize and, and fix this and turn it over to the states. I'm still hoping that that's the case. I did read up on your history with the DEA and I, I kind of wanted to get for our listeners, um, from you, your experience with um, the DEA and the HIA, the Hemp Industries Association, and why, you know, it went from, you know, why the HIA sued the DEA for them having a point um, zero or it was at one ppm versus one and a half ppm was the tolerance of 
total THC that the HIA allowed versus the DEA only allowing one part per million. So the HIA sued the DEA. Were you a part of that at all? Or did you just kind of watch the madness? Um, so I, I was the, I had the biggest burden of compliance at the time. I did the most import of, of hemp foods and hemp seed. Everything that wasn't for human consumption that was hemp was uh, ex exempted, was explicitly legalized, no max THC. So you could have had purses that were 5% THC and they would have been legal. Everybody at HIA was, uh, was, was exempt. They were selling clothes or soap or, or, or things, you know, things like that that weren't, uh, didn't have to comply. I was doing the food and so I had to comply and I had the biggest burden. I knew U.S. Customs was 1%. HIA later set up for test pledge uh, uh, the limit of 1.5. So they killed the hemp food market, almost taking Canadian hemp down with it for years over half of a ppm of THC. And it was just, it was a joke. It was such a joke of a suit that the uh, one of the justices in the Ninth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals uh, dissented. And in his dissent, he wrote, um, that even, even the plaintiff acknowledges that this is all bogus and not even relevant anymore after this other change the DEA did. And therefore, because it's <clears throat> a gratuitous ruling, I'm not going to sign off on it. It was that bogus of a lawsuit. Killed hemp for years, uh, hemp foods for years. It answered every investor's first question, is this legal to the DEA in the, in the affirmative? And I was trying to raise millions of dollars to, for hemp food at the time. So um, I, I'm you know, of the opinion that you, whatever regulation you give me, I'll figure out how to do what I got to do. And, and uh, that regulation was, was easy to comply with. The thing was, uh, Bronner was new to the industry. He had just taken over Vote Hemp in a, a hostile takeover. And um, he wanted to gin up outrage to, to make Vote Hemp be this big uh, lobbying and political thing. And um, this was the perfect case to do it. And uh, the bonus was he didn't have any skin in the game. So it would have not, he wouldn't have lost any sales over it. And um, uh, it worked. They garnered hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations. And, uh, and then DEA, after the suit, paid their legal fees. So they made bank on it. It destroyed my life's work. Uh, uh, I walked away from it right at the peak of my ability and flush with millions of dollars in cash and tons of momentum. And, and uh, it, we could have made hemp seed as ubiquitous as soya uh, today by today if, if, uh, if we were just left to our own devices um, by people who had no burden of compliance. So is that where like you and the HIA went on separate paths? Yeah, well, yes. And so they, they used a lot of, they made up stuff in court. It's a lot of uh, things they tried to do to use my words, uh, both for and against their case. And DEA would quote the exact same page. And they were both using uh, my words from the website and press releases to push their case. And then once they were done using me to push their case, HAI kicked me out. You know, and I also had the Hemp Food Association that they were, they were, uh, had about 40 uh, companies from around the world part of it. And um, 
they were trying to make it look like that that was a that was a bogus thing and and you know they were quite nasty to me and since then uh slander me to others uh people have told me things and um and so yeah we went our separate ways uh and uh i i you know i went away for years uh, if you look at what i did the first five years in hemp and the last five years in hemp and if i could have done that in the middle 15 years it, we would have a, be a lot further down the road also subsequent to the ninth circuit decision in 2004 uh in their favor they then started uh appearing to work for to protect investments in Canadian hemp from the scourge of US hemp and uh, you see evidence of that all over I mean they're top three companies that they constantly promoted um, were all had operations uh, supply operations in Canada and today you pay twice for shelled hemp seed than you should and it's the rarest commercial grain available so they want they knew that once the us legalized uh, uh canada hemp's biggest customer will become their biggest competitor overnight and that's what's happened today richard i think we're gonna let you go god this has been awesome quite possibly in the future could we check back in with you sir oh of course and yeah anytime if there's some issue that's come up you want to talk about or or uh whatever i mean just just hit me up i'm, I'm around I think you got to plug your, uh, uh, your your stuff early on, but if you want to plug your Rose, it's the Rose Report. No, it's um, yeah. The, I was going to be the Rose Report, and it turns out that's a, a prison industry publication out of England. So I quickly <laughs> abandoned that. Yeah, the Richard Rose Report dot com, uh, the Richard Rose Report dot com, and. Um, you know, there's Canada Search Daily. There's probably 50 to 100 posts at new every day on CBD and hemp. There's all kinds of stuff there. You just look around, you'll discover new things all the time. And um, yeah, therichardrosereport.com. Richard, I got to get out of here because i am got to go to my farm. It's that pesky farming thing. There's a reason I was never a farmer. <laughs> you were smart, sir. It's it's really hard work and I know it. And I, I will, you grow it. My opinion was always you grow the seed and I'll process it, but I'll be damned if I'm gonna get up at 4 a.m. and go water, you know, turn on the, the pivot or whatever. Well, thanks, cause I'm out of here, guys. All right, okay, cheers guys. Thank you. Right, bye. See ya. Ciao. Bye. Ciao. Ciao. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Full Contact Cannabis is created by Jarbo, the old hemp farmer. Audio recordist, Abby McCullough. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com.